The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. From baseball's top personalities. The great Chris Russo joins us once again. To the game's top players. Joining us is the all-star. Matt Chapman with us. You never know what stories you're going to hear. If you make your way down here, I, I might be able to make some time and go out there and see the great Chris Townsend. This is A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. Time now for another edition of A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend, and we continue to celebrate the Swingin' A's, the World Series champions from 1972, 73, and 74. Today we're going to have on the great Vita Blue, Joe Rudy, the voice of the A's. No one called more bigger games for the A's than Monty Moore and also Gene Tennis. But we're going to start with my guy, Vida, one of the coolest guys in the history of Major League Baseball, a three-time World Series champion, a six-time All-Star, AL MVP, and AL Cy Young Award winner in 1971, AL ERA leader in 1971, pitched a no-hitter in 1970. He's a part of the Athletics Hall of Fame. He's a part of the San Francisco Giants Wall of Fame. The great Vita Blue, the big lefty. Here he is on A's Cast Live. It is always an honor to have a man on who won three World Series championships with the Athletics. He was a six-time All-Star. He was the American League MVP, American League Cy Young Award winner, American League ERA leader. He's pitched a no-hitter. He's in the A's Hall of Fame. He's in the San Francisco Giants Wall of Fame. He's one of the great Bay Area athletes of all time. The legend Vida Blue joins us here. Vida, you know it's always great when we have you on here on A's Cast Live. No, man, you're my you're one of my favorites, Chris. Thanks for always being a professional guy, man, and I appreciate that about you. Uh, it's always fun we can come on and talk sports and uh, talk life in some cases too, you know. So uh, here we go, man. But uh, hey, man, thanks for the intro. I I had a great run during my time as a big league player. Uh, I was an avid football player, but I never thought my wildest dream I would be a major league baseball player. But, uh, you know, uh, we, we've been sitting around during this unprecedented time of our lives this this last month or so. And I've been watching a lot of TV. I even saw a movie the other day with about it was the Jackie Robinson story where he played himself. And, uh, and of course, I sat up on my couch there to see. But it was the same stuff where the bigotry and the prejudice and all that stuff played into the movie but uh i also heard from one from an old veteran long time ago and you know how we are in baseball we baseball folklore is is rampant and, and it's good as it gets so the story goes that jackie when he first started playing i'm not sure what city he was in but guy kept heckling him as he'd come and go back to and from the field back to the dugout so he find the guy was all over one time so he's coming back off the field and he finally stops that sir are you an American? The guy said, yes, I am. He said, well, shut up, sit down and act like one did. <laughs> now, I don't know how true that is, but that's what one of those, one of those vets, I'm not sure if he was, might have even been Mr. Buck O'Neill, who, who, who was good at telling stories about Satcher Page and the Negro Leagues and, and the history of baseball from the, from the black perspective. But uh, anyway, I, I've been watching a lot of TV, and as I mentioned to you earlier, my my uh, Domino's game has gotten exposed playing against the phone, which is a all-time professional. It, it just it counters every move that I make. So I've gotten beat, you know, handily 
and one-sidedly the last week since I've been playing. But uh, it's just great to be home and having some uh, some perspective on life, and and some of this stuff will will bring it to the forefront. But uh, I want to reach out to all the folks out there, that, you know, food service at these ballparks who are, you know, a lot of this is the big part of their livelihood. So I. My heart goes out to those folks who are not having that revenue coming in. Uh, it, it goes out to everybody. This is an epic time in our lives, and uh, we've got to sit down and figure this thing out. Uh, you know, th- this this could happen again, but on the bright side, uh, I do miss baseball at this point. I, I miss basketball. I miss sports in general. This first time, sports has had to shut itself down. So uh, normally you could always turn to sports. You know, 9-11, they, guys got back on the field. Uh, Bush 42 went out, went to New York throughout the first pitch. And I think it was something that was well needed. And uh, sports saved the day for us. But this time around, uh, they sports is shut down too. So we're all in this thing together. But we'll get through it. Speaking of the Negro League Museum, two years ago when I was with the Raiders in Kansas City, I went to the museum. And I'll never forget this because – you know, my grandfather was Bob Elliott, who was the first third baseman ever in Major League uh, to win the MVP in Major League Baseball in 1947. And Jackie Robinson grounded out to my grandfather in his very first at bat. So I knew that. No was way. Be, oh, yeah. I knew that was going to be mentioned. But I will never forget being in the Negro League Museum. And I hear these two voices narrating this video. And, and, and I'm like, that's Vita Blue and Marty Lurie. And I'm looking around, I'm like, and then all of a sudden I, I look and I see this screen and, and, and I'm like, oh my God. And I remember texting uh, Marty Lurie going, I'm listening to you, right? And I mean, that's pretty cool. When I went in there and saw saw the video that you guys narrate, that's something pretty special. Uh-huh. Thank you very much. I've been to that museum, Mr. Kendrick's back there. I'm not sorry, Kendrick's, it's Hendrix, I think it is. He's running it now, but uh, it was a it was an honor for me to get to go to visit that place. Uh I don't know if I told you that Mr. Buck O'Neill was one of the first African-American scouts. He think he was working for the Cubs and he scouted me when I was in high school. And uh, he says he was coming to see me, but I had played with a guy named Jesse Hudson, who was also a left-handed pitcher, had a curveball like Burt Blylevin or Rudy May or Jim Palmer right over the top. And he got drafted by the Mets the same year. I got drafted by the A's, but unfortunately for Jesse, they had a guy named Nolan Ryan, Greg uh, Swan, uh, Kuzman, and Tom Seaver on that pitching staff. So, unfortunately, his career was cut short because he couldn't make the he couldn't make the team. Man, the Yankees, uh, not Yankees, excuse me, the Mets were loaded with pitching at that time, and of course they had a guy named Tug McGraw coming out of the bullpen at that time. But uh, Mr. O'Neill said he came down to uh, scout me, but I got a funny so he might have been coming to see both of us, but. Uh, my friend's name is Jesse Hudson. I see him when I go back to Mansfield, Louisiana every now and then, but uh, he's doing well. But uh, that's the tale of the two uh, lefties out of Mansfield, Louisiana. But uh, I've had a good run, my friend. And, uh, uh, you know, somebody was telling me that I was a one-pitch pitcher, and I was. I'm like, I really was. I just threw a four-seam fastball in my first four or five years in the big leagues. And I, somebody, I don't know if it was Catfish or Blue Moon, or maybe both of them, somebody was telling me, Hey man, you got to come up with a new pitch. You got so I started throwing a two seamer and I mixed in a change up every now and then, and that's what got me through to tell you the truth. But uh, 
it's not easy being a one pitch pitcher, but it worked for me. And I started using that two seam and it made my life just a little easier, Chris, to tell you the truth. Well, I mean, you mentioned those names and the guys that you, your rotation, Kenny Holtzman won so many games, so many big games. Catfish is a hall of famer. I, 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 I know I'm biased because I love you so much. I think you should be a Hall of Famer. Uh, Blue Moon, I mean, just talk about that staff. You guys won three straight World Series, and you did it because of your starting pitching. Yeah, the, the pitching usually is the, the, uh, the part of the game that takes you the farthest. Uh, you can have three guys with 40 home runs, but if you can't stop your opponent from scoring, it's all for naught. But... You know, Chris, I was 22, 23, and 24 years old, uh, 72, 3, and 4, and uh, I didn't appreciate what we had accomplished. Uh, plus, I was battling with Mr. Finley all the time about contract stuff every year. And uh, I'm a, this is a true story. I didn't go to not one of the parades, not one parade in Oakland. You watch footage. You don't see me. None of those footages, none of that footage, none of that footage, Coming down, I think it was Broadway in Oakland, so, uh, Broadway Telegraph. But anyway, I regret not doing that, man. And I, I cheated myself to be there and join up with my teammates because we, it was something special that we had accomplished. And um, uh, but you can't get that back. But you know, you move forward with your life. But uh, it was a, it was a wonderful time for me. Like I said, three years in a row, 22 and 23 and 24 years old, and you're thinking. Man, it's going to be like this all the time. You get a good taste in your mouth from success, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, and I think about you being a small-town kid, and next thing you know, in 1971, you're 21 years old, and you become a rock star. I mean, you're on like yeah. the you're – the, you're on the major magazines. Everybody knows who you are. What was that like? getting that kind of success and being so popular and being a star in America at 21 years old? Well, the small town boy, it kept me grounded being from a small town, I think. And uh, uh, the success didn't go to my head, but the exposure that, that I was getting uh, on the cover, as you mentioned, Look, Life, Time, Newsweek, SI, uh, Sports Digest, and all this other stuff. Uh, on the Mer, uh, not Mer, I was on the Dick Cabot show. Uh, I got to play an All Star game against Willie Mays. Man, I pitched to Willie Mays in 1971 doing the All Star game. So I had a good run for about five years because you know winning the championship those first three years and winning uh, 20 games a couple years in a row and, and winning the Cy Young and MVP in '71. It, it was it was a heck of a run, my friend, and. Uh, uh, I look back at it today, and I do appreciate every minute of being a big league player because uh, had I made it, not made it, people ask me all the time, what would I have done had I not been a big league baseball player? I don't know, a fireman, hell, I don't know. I don't have a clue. It was destined to for me to be a major league player, and uh, hopefully I've, I made a, and opened a lot of doors for other folks along the way, and uh, I put Mansfield, Louisiana on the map, and I'm very proud of the little town that I grew up in, my friend. Well, let's be honest. There was uh, quite a few college football teams that wanted you. If you didn't play baseball, you might have been a left-handed quarterback in the NFL. Well, I was a big Ken Saban fan, I can tell you that. But uh, my true idol, I want to be Johnny Unitas. He was the man back in the day with the Baltimore coach with those high tops and uh, wearing number 19. Uh, 
I might, I thought I was a better football player than baseball player, Chris, but they make them big and fast these days. So I, I don't know if I would have played 17 years of football like I did as a major league baseball player. And uh, I still have my wits about myself. Some people think I'm, I have concussion from being a baseball player, but it's, it's a old crazy joke that some of my friends accuse me of being forgetful. And, uh, when you're 70 years old, I don't say I forget. I just say I can't remember stuff. That's how I defend my honor when I'm at my age right now. So, uh, hey, man, I, I had a good run, like I said, Chris. But uh, football was my first love, but uh, I ended up being a baseball player, and I'm glad for every minute of being a, a major league baseball player. Well, starting on Friday, we're going to start airing on NBC Sports California the 1972 World Series, it's going to be game two. And when you think back to the Cincinnati Reds, this is the start of the big red machine. They're the favorites, and you end up beating them. People didn't understand how great your team was. They didn't know the run you were going to go and the the run you were going to go on and the dynasty you guys were. What was it like looking back, taking on the Cincinnati Reds and beating the Reds? Well, like you mentioned, they were the clean-cut guys. We had long hair and mustache. And, of course, our owner versus their owner and our manager versus uh, uh, Sparky Anderson. They, I don't know if they used us as bullet, bulletin board material, but pitching, pitching, pitching. And we out-pitched them and out-played them. Uh, you know, we just played solid. Matter of fact, uh, uh, was Reggie wasn't even on that squad at that time. He got hurt, injured in Detroit. That play at home played with running into uh, Bill Freehand. So we did a good job of pitching. Uh, unfortunately, I had two bad outings, and uh, uh, but we we prevailed and we pulled through it. But uh, they, they not the A's, the uh, the Reds were a great team at that time, Chris, as you mentioned with Hall of Famers bench. I'm gonna say Pete Rose too, and uh, Perez now, and uh, and of course Joe Morgan. But uh, we we handled our pitching. I pitched them, so you know. We knew if, if we scored, we could defend, and that, that's what our team was solid with, good defense, and pitch, it starts with pitching. That That is the truest form of defense that you can have. Well, and then I think of your next two World Series, and they got Hall of Famers too. I mean, Willie Mays was on there in 1973. Of course, the great Tom Seaver. It's always funny to look back. Yogi Berra was the manager. You guys ended up beating the Mets, and then the next year after that, to make it three in a row, you beat a really <laughs> good Dodger team. I mean, you went through some really good teams. Yeah, you're, you're right. I think the Mets might have matched up the best with us with their pitching and our pitching but uh uh hey man I, again all the players were so young i'm not sure if we realized how solid we were we weren't the best team but we played the best ball at the right time and that's always the key to success of winning right you know if you're playing good in april and may that, that that's a good thing too but it's august september and obviously in october when you need to be playing your best baseball and we just happen to have that run of five divisions in a row and uh three championships mixed in between that. So uh, I'm very proud to be a part of that, that group of players that won those three and won those five divisional titles. Yeah, you know, Vita, when I talked to all of you guys, we, we did the Captain Sal Bando. We talked to Raleigh Fingers, uh, the Hall of Famer. Every single Wednesday, we speak with our, our buddy Ray Fossey. He comes on my show and we just talk baseball. And, 
And and the, and the one thing is everybody mentions the common enemy, which is Charlie Finley, and you had your battles <laughs> with him. And, and just the stories are so crazy. Like, it's stuff that would never happen today. This this crazy guy who had some brilliant ideas, who built this team, he owned the team, he ran the team, he was the GM, and he did it from Chicago, and he listened to the game <laughs> by phone. I mean, the stories are just insane. Well, I... Uh... I don't speak very ill of the dead, but I, I, I tell people that I think Mr. Finley was a combination of Al Davis, George Steinbrenner, Ted Turner, and Donald Trump all into one. And he was that type of person. You never knew what you were going to get on any given day, but he put together a great ball club and we won games and we won championships. So you got to give the man credit. You got to give him credit for the color coding of the uniforms with the gold uniform, a uh, gold tops and the green top and the white on white on Sundays, uh, the wedding gown white, as he used to call it. But uh, the guy was something special and he was our, the most common enemy, enemy that most of us had because of his issues when it came to dealing with money and contracts. But uh, Hey man, he put the best players on the field that, that played together. And, uh, we had that success, and uh, you, you still got to give him credit for putting those teams together. Let's end on this, because I was telling you before we did this interview how my wife has a picture <laughs> with you as a little girl when you were a San Francisco Giant. Just really how blessed were you, not only what you did in Oakland, but also you were an all-star with the San Francisco Giants, and you really got to play the majority of your career here in the Bay Area. I was so lucky in that regard, Chris, to stay in the Bay Area. Uh, and, uh, you know, funny thing, I, I had a couple of years in San Francisco, and I still lived in Oakland and Alameda at that time. And the year I was going to move and buy a place over on, on the in the West Bay, I got traded to Kansas City. I'm like, I'm so glad I didn't buy that condo or buy that house. But uh, I had a good run locally here in the Bay Area. And, uh, hey, man, uh they're A's fans, they're Giants fans, and they're, uh, there's a ton of Vital Blue fans. I'm so lucky to still be here in the Bay Area. And uh, thank you for reaching out. Hope hope your wife still has that photograph. Ask if, when I, will you ask her if I had hair and a mustache? Because uh, I did grow my mustache as I got older. It would have been like 1980 or 1981. Did you have the mustache at that point? I think I did, and and what was what was then an afro, which is now a clean shaven head. <laughs> <laughs> Vida, it, it is always you know when we were on the field last season, and we had you and Blue Moon on at the same time. It was magical, and what you did in the Bay Area, you, you, you're one of the greatest Bay Area athletes of all time, and it's always an honor to have you on, and it's going to be great that you get to watch this and you get to see you and your teammates win 1972, 73, 74, as we're going to be airing these games on NBC California. Be safe, be well, and hopefully we'll talk to you uh, when this season gets going. Thank you, Chris, so much. Thanks for having me on, man, and go A's. From one champion to another. Joe Rudy, three-time World Series champion, three-time Gold Glove Award winner, and three-time All-Star. Left field, first base. He was one of the best A's. He was a rock. Here is the left fielder, Joe Rudy. Well, as everybody knows, on NBC Sports California, we are celebrating one of the greatest teams of all time, the 72, 73, 74 Oakland Athletics. We're going to be replaying World Series games. And a man that was a big part of that 
as he was a three-time World Series champion, a three-time All-Star, and a three-time Gold Glove Award winner. The great Joe Rudy is with us. Joe, thank you so much for coming on and talking about those great teams you, you, you played on. Well, thank you. Yeah, a lot of great memories, a lot of great teammates. That's uh, always the hardest part when you get to uh, get out of the game is you miss all those guys that you spent so many years. And we were in a special time that we got to play together for so long, you know, signing, going through the minor leagues and all the years we played in the big leagues until, of course, everybody left after 76 almost. But uh, it was a special time. Yeah, tell us, tell us what it was like starting this group together in Kansas City, you know, some in the minor leagues, some to the big leagues, and then moving to Oakland, and that's where the, where it really started to get to a point to where you guys knew you had a special core. Well, I, I you know, the early 60s, uh, you know, Mr. Finley signed a lot of us. I don't know, 64, you know, we had uh, Catfish, Hunter, and Renee Lashman, myself, uh, uh, Skip Lockwood, who ended up being a major league pitcher. We had quite a few guys that got to the big leagues all signed in that 64 class. And uh, we're going to do our first, uh, you know, winter ball and we've got a chance to really see and meet everybody and uh, play down in Bradenton, Florida where the A's uh, when they were in Kansas City at spring training in Bradenton, Florida. And that was our first exposure to it. And uh, you know, we were so blessed back then. We had, uh, you know, Hall of Fame coaches, uh, Gabby Hartnett, Luke Appling, a bunch of those type of people that were coaching with the A's at that time. And uh, just learned so much from them and uh, getting that, you know, chance to play that much. And uh, a lot of the guys, uh, 65, ended up spending the whole year and uh, on the big league team. That's how Catfish uh, never pitched in the minor leagues because he was an 18-year-old kid sitting right in the bench. He had five uh, – of first-year players, because if you didn't keep on a big league roster, you could get drafted by another team, uh, which I ended up going to Cleveland and coming back sort of under the table trade uh, for one of their top prospects was in the same boat. So they, they were able to figure out a way to get us down and let us play that summer and then come back. But Catfish uh, ended, up, they ended up using him, and uh, he went 8-8 eight and eight, uh, in, in 65 there. And uh, so anyway, they all, you know, we just – kept playing together we all came out of there went to a ball like a modesto i think we had 14 guys on that team and went to the big leagues from la russa and duncan and fingers myself uh guys i'm trying to remember off the top of my head and then a lot of us went to uh, birmingham double a the next year and uh, actually i started out that year in 67 um, going from a ball in the, in the modesto there to i was starting left fielder in kansas city which was you know just blew my mind to go from A-ball to the big leagues. And so uh, 67, Reggie, myself, Duncan, a bunch of us went up and down two or three times. You know, Charlie would throw us out there. We'd start having a little struggle. He'd send us down to the minor leagues and our swing back, brings back up. And uh, the guy was a genius. He really was. you got to give him credit for all the stuff that he did, players he signed. Um, and uh, like I said, being able to keep that core of players together. If you look at all those years from, you know, the late 60s through 76, that basic core of players stayed together. We had a lot of guys coming in that were, you know, field players and stuff, but that basic unit of starting pitching and, and the starting lineup uh, pretty much stayed together all those years. You know, there's probably not too many guys in the history of the game that went from A ball to the big leagues. I, I was very blessed. I really was. Uh, you know, I signed out of high school, uh, actually the last year before, 
uh, the draft. I was in that 64 class. 65 was the first year that we had the major league draft. Rick Mundy, of course, was the very first player ever taken by the Kansas City A's and my first roommate in the big leagues. Uh, but uh, uh, Alvin Dark was our manager and uh, went to spring training that year. And uh, everything he told me to do, I just had one of those magical springs. I mean, I hit the ball great. I struggled greatly in the outfield because I had never played the outfield. I, I was a shortstop in high school and played a little bit of third base and had just played a few games in the outfield. And uh, so one of the reasons they sent me down, I was I was hitting okay, but they sent me down that year to, to learn how to play first base, believe it or not, in 67. And then 68, uh, we, we came back and um, very, very blessed again to have Joe DiMaggio as a bench coach. And... Uh, Bob Kennedy was our manager, and uh, and Joe and he took me under their wing. And uh, every day that whole year that I was there on the big club from spring training on, they they would go down. And Bob would stand over in the third base coach's box and hit me line drives, fly balls, and everything else in the outfield. And uh, Joe uh, Joe D would uh, be in trying to you know help me figure out footwork and everything. And I remember the first time they were trying to hit balls over my head where I turned my back on the ball, run to a spot and try to catch the ball. And I'd turn and the ball would be 50 feet, you know, the other direction. It took quite a while to figure out how to track a ball and uh, run to the right spot. But I, again, blessed with great coaching. And, uh, so, uh, it, it was one of those magical years, you know, we just, uh, went down to double a and, you know, we had Reggie there, Duncan fingers won won that league also. And, uh, it was just a, a like I said, it was a blessing to be able to ha- keep those group of those players together, those all through that uh, time period. What was that like the first time you see Joe DiMaggio in an A's uniform and you realize he's your coach? Uh, you know, we, obviously we had read about it a little bit, and then we got spring training, and you know we're all just in awe of him. I was afraid to even say hi to him. He's going, you know, Joe, who who are you? And, uh, but he, I tell you what, he was one of the nicest guys. Uh, he was so different around the players. Once he got to know you and everything, he was a jokester. He'd give you a hot foot at times sitting on the bench or in the bus. And, and he was great around the players. He was very wary, I guess, because of all the stuff he'd been through with the press and that kind of stuff. So he was very guarded around strangers in the press but when he was on the bus and then the dugout on the field with the guys he was just a super nice man and uh, like i said i felt so so lucky to spend two years with him the years he was coaching there in 68-69 what was it like taking down the cincinnati reds the big red machine and you guys win your first win world series you know that, again that was a crazy year um you know, we, we started getting, you know, we, we first came up, obviously, we were real young. I think we moved to Oakland. Our average uh, on the field age was 22, believe it or not. And uh, with the guys starting in the, out there in 68, you know, you know, we got our butts kicked <laughs> in 68, a little better in 69. 70, we actually just lost to the Twins, I think, in that uh, division. And, of course, 71 uh, – with uh, Dick Williams coming on and uh, just, he, he was such a good manager and a good leader, no nonsense, uh, you know, didn't accept mental errors. I mean, errors happen, but don't, don't do it twice, you know, especially on the mental errors and just pushed us so hard with that, uh, that, 
you know, we lost in 71 to, uh, in the playoffs, of course, to Baltimore. And then 72, everybody just seemed to start coming together. And uh, I had one of my best years that year. And uh, we got to Cincinnati, of course, where, you know, again, all of us are young guys in awe of their big red machine. We were just so happy to be there. We didn't even think about winning. We were just out there having a great time. Of course, we lost Reggie in the playoffs the last game when he scored the winning run. Uh, and so we, you know, we really didn't talk a whole lot about winning. We just went in there and, uh, you know, again, Dick Williams was such a good leader. Uh, we had great scouting guys that were following the Reds right before uh, the series started. We knew, you know, awful lot about how they hit, um, where to play them in the outfield, uh, what their pitchers tried to do in different circumstances and all that stuff. So we had some great um, meetings going over all the scouting reports. So, uh, you know, this series just developed. We started playing what we won, and holy mackerel, we got a chance. And then the, the 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 confidence is sky high after that. You know, Ray Fossey, your old teammate, uh, of course, comes on this program every single week, and he loves to tell the story about Dick Green telling him, oh, don't worry about it. We're going to win the World Series when he came over in 73, and, of course, you do it in 73 and 74. So once you guys won that first one, you had great confidence. We really did, and you know, like I said, we all had started maturing. We're all right in our mid twenties there. We had, you know, so uh, we all played together quite a while. Had quite a few years in the big leagues. You know, really knew what we could do. We knew that we had a really great defensive team and just incredible pitching. That was what was so great. So the pitching we had, not only starting but also out of the bullpen, and. Uh, you know, you look at the guys coming out of the bullpen uh, with Raleigh, Daryl Nose, Bob Locker. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of the Spanish guy. There was a sinker ball, Horatio Pena. You know, all these guys have been number one stoppers on other teams before we got them. And uh, so, you know, having not only that great starting pitching, but then coming in with those guys. Uh, and we we had played that type of ball with, with Dick Williams all along. We played an awful lot of two-to-one, three-to-two, four-to-three games that were tight games, you know, and he just – preached and hammered us about be, not beating ourselves and not to making mental errors, not making stupid plays, but going out there and making the other team make the mistakes. And uh, I think that's what really sort of unified us and, and gave us that confidence as we started playing uh, more and more and winning more that, uh, you know, winning just breathes winning. You know, looking back at your career, you had so many interesting things happen to you. We've mentioned that you went from A-ball to the big leagues. We mentioned that you won three straight World Series with the A's. Only the Yankee, only Yankees have done that also. Then you get traded with Raleigh Fingers to the Boston Red Sox. You report they actually issue you a uniform, but then Bowie Kuhn voids the, voids the trade you so you go to I, I don't know if you were at Boston or where, where you met the Red Sox, but that's just insane to think you got traded. You go meet the Red Sox, and then before you ever play a game, they go, "No, you got to go back to Oakland." Well, a lot of people don't realize that back then, actually, the Red Sox were in Oakland, and so we had come off a Monday day game, and we had gone down to visit our folks that lived in Modesto and stuff. And back then, of course, you didn't have cell phones or anything else, and so nobody could get a hold of us. And so the trade had happened uh, that Monday, you know, afternoon. So we we get back uh, Monday night, and 
find out, you know, that we've been traded and we go to the ballpark, of course. And it was very strange. I mean, here's 76. I mean, that's 13 years I just spent with the A's organization and most of them in the big leagues. And um, for Raleigh and I both really just felt like ducks out of water. I remember putting on the, you know, they had to take, <laughs> they had to, you know, we just walked across the hallway into the visitor's clubhouse and they took my white baseball spikes, the ones we had to wear, and they just had to, they tried to take and put black shoe polish on them to make them black, which didn't look real great, but that's, you know, the shoes we had. And I remember Raleigh and I going out there and trying to run and get loose, and we both said, man, I, can't, I am so disoriented, I can't even run. And thank, thank goodness that uh, Daryl Johnson, who was a manager of Boston, uh, who happened to be a real close friend of mine, I duck hunted with him a lot in uh in the winter time he lived in the bay area also really really nice man and uh so anyway he said hey i'm not going to play you guys tonight let's get your feet on the ground so just sit back and relax so that night we did not play which i think was one of the key things of why the the buoy was able to stamp you know step in and cancel the trade because we didn't play and so the next morning we now it comes down from the commissioner that uh he was, uh, you know, not letting the trades go through for the, for the good of the game. You know, and obviously in 76, we were only two games out. Uh, but then we went through about three weeks of just craziness, not knowing where we were supposed to go or, or anything. Finally, Charlie finally let us go out and start working out with the team before, and then we had to get dressed. And um, But we were in limbo for, I can't even remember, two and a half, three weeks, something like that. Wow, that's uh, it's unbelievable. How many? How many? Let's end on this. If you guys stayed together, how many more World Series do you think you would have won? I, well, you know, you can never say what could have happened. I mean, for sure. But I, you know, we were all in our just getting into our prime. I mean, you think about it. In uh, uh, let's see, in '74, I was just 26, maybe something like that. You know, most of us were in that 25, six, seven range. And, uh, and like I said, we still had that core together. Everybody was still there. You know, the big thing that, you know, really hurt us, of course, was losing uh, Catfish. Uh, you know, if Catfish hadn't, had not have uh, been able to you know, become a free agent there, which I think was what really changed baseball more than Messerschmitt and uh, uh, McNally did when he left the A's after all the years he'd had such a great year, not even hardly making – a hundred thousand a year. I don't think he was making that much, and he went from a hundred thousand to seven hundred and fifty thousand on a five-year guaranteed contract with the Angels. I think that, or the with the Yankees. I mean, that changed baseball more than anything. But uh, yeah, that was really uh, hard to follow when, when all that was taking place. When he turned, when the trade was turned over, my wife was really excited to go to Boston, and uh, we had loved Boston. We knew so many people there, and. Uh, Anyway, one of those things that's, uh, you know, we could have kept that team together and, and uh, not lost everybody if the free agency hadn't come along until a few years later. I, I really think we could have won two or three more easily. Well, it's safe to say uh, your time in Oakland, uh, it was never boring. <laughs> that's an understatement. <laughs> you know, yeah. besides walking, walking in the clubhouse and never know what color uniform you were wearing. 
<laughs> uh, but what a great time it was as you guys were world champions three straight years. It was a very special time. And uh, I'm so happy we're going to be honoring you guys because there's going to be a lot of people that have never seen these games before. They're going to be able to see now how great your teams really were. Well, appreciate the uh, that, that going through. And like I said, giving time here to watch some interesting games and uh, Kurt Gowdy calling a few games. It was, uh, brings back a lot of memories. Joe, thank you so much. Be well, be safe, and we'll talk to you later on during the season. Uh, looking forward to it. Can't wait for it to start, whether it's in Arizona or wherever it starts, but let's get this thing going. Thanks for having me on, and uh, be safe. Gene Tennis, as a player and a coach, has been a part of six World Series championships. How about that? He's got six rings. He was an all-star in 1975 and, of course, was the World Series MVP in 1972. Here is Gene Tennis. Well, when you talk about somebody who had a great baseball career, not only as an athletic, but also winning World Series in multiple spots, he's a six-time World Series champion. And, of course, he did it three times with the Oakland Athletics. And, of course, tonight we're playing game two of 1972 between the Athletics and the Cincinnati Reds. And nobody showed up bigger in that series against the Reds than the great Gene Tennis. And he joins us now here on A's Cast Live. Gino, how have you been? I'm doing good. Thank you. You know, I think about that World Series for you, and all of a sudden, man, you're hitting home runs, and uh, you end up being the MVP of this World Series. Yeah, I got in a zone, I guess they call it, uh, back in back in that day, where it, it seemed like everything I hit either went out of the ballpark or it fell in for a hit. Yeah, and you think about it, you're the only player, well, you were the first, I don't know if anyone's done it since, but you're the first player to hit a home run in your first two ever World Series at-bats. Safe to say you were feeling pretty comfortable coming into this thing. Well, it was kind of a frustrating playoff I had. I was like one for 16 against Detroit, and then all of a sudden uh, I got in the World Series, and it seemed like, like I said, everything I hit, it seemed it found a hole someplace. When you look back at that World Series, obviously you guys were underdogs, and you end up winning that World Series, and it really changed everything for you guys going forward. Because even though you would be, you you kept being underdogs, but to you guys, you were never underdogs. You expected to win all these World Series. Yeah, we had. We felt we had uh, the talent to compete with anybody, and of course, it was made a lot tougher when we lost Reggie in the playoffs, the fifth game in Detroit. And we didn't have him going into the series. But then again, you know, we had tremendous pitching staff, and that, that was one of the main reasons I think uh, we won that series against Cincinnati. And actually the rest of them, because our pitching staff was our key, to, was our strength to our ball club. Yeah, that's one thing. You know, I've been talking to a lot of your teammates. You know, we've had Vita Blue on. We've had Raleigh Fingers. We've had Sal, we have Sal Bando. Uh, the great Ray Fossey joins us every single Wednesday. And just to talk about pitching and just you guys never beat you never you never beat yourselves. You guys played great defense. You were fundamentally sound. It's the way Dick Williams wanted it. That's how he managed. It's just the way you guys played, you were never gonna beat yourself. And the other team a lot of the times would beat themselves against you guys. Well, that was a contribute to uh, Dick Williams. Whenever he got hired as a manager for the A's, the first thing he did in spring training we worked, we did, he pounded fundamentals into us and uh, 
we finally uh, figured that, you know, if we don't start picking these fundamentals up, and uh, we're not going to get any batting practice. So uh, he just kept pounding it in us, uh, and uh, we kind of, you know, realized this was going to take for us, you know, to get to the next level. And uh, the thing about our club is that once we realized how important those fundamentals were, I don't recall when, from the seventh inning on. We didn't we didn't lose too many ball games from the seventh inning on. We were about as tough as any club from the seventh inning on. If you were going to beat us, you're going to have to do it early. When you look back at just the craziness of those teams, because we're also going to be not only airing the games from '72 but '73 and '74, you guys really were a wild bunch when you think about it. Well, I don't. Well, it was the '70s too, you know. So I think there was a lot of people who were wild back in those days. But uh, the thing about our club is, you know, you know, we were good. We had talent. Uh, we had a group of guys that had tremendous makeup, and they're all pulling at the same end of the rope. They all wanted to win, and that was. And I've been on a lot of other clubs, you know, since that, and we had good players on some on the clubs I was on, but they just didn't match up to that 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 group that I played with in Oakland. There was just too many guys that, you know, had tremendous makeup. Yeah, we uh, also talked to another of your former teammates, Joe Rudy, and he talks about how one of the reasons why you guys were so special is that you guys are all in your prime and, and a young prime. And that, you know, you think about guys in their mid to late 20s, that you guys all blossomed together at the same time, and you don't see that happen a whole heck of a lot. No, no. Uh, I think Joe's accurate with that. You know, we were in our prime, but we also knew how to win. I mean, that's a lot of teams don't know how to win. You know, I talk about chemistry. To me, it's, you know, chemistry is makeup. If you've got good players with good makeup, and that, and that incorporates a lot of intangibles to makeup. That's what we had. We had like 25 guys with tremendous makeup, and all they want to do is win, and they paid the sacrifice and the, and the you know, and the work ethic they had. And, uh, and a lot of us, they wanted to, you know, throw it in Charlie's face too, I think. But, uh, <laughs> you know, the key thing was, you know, a lot of teams have, they lack chemistry. You hear that a lot with clubs. Well, we got good talent, but they don't have this chemistry. Well, that's the makeup for me. And that's what we had. You know, that's one thing you guys have all mentioned. Charlie always comes up, and it's the common enemy, Charlie Finley. What were your dealings with, with, with the owner and general manager? Well, I only dealt with him, you know, contract time, which was uh, probably the worst time of, you could probably want to deal with him. But uh, once I got the contract inked, you know, signed, uh, he never messed with me. He always would go to some you know, higher profile guy like Reggie or, you know, Bando or Catfish or one of those guys. But uh, dealing with him uh, on a contract was very frustrating. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine. You know, a whole team bonding together. I mean, I, I don't even know if you'll ever see this again, but a whole team bonding together because they wanted to stick it to the owner. That's not something that normally happens in professional sports. No, you know, it was sad because the, I don't think he realized we wanted to win as, as you know, more so than he did, but uh, and uh, we had a tremendous group of guys that, that could pull that off, and they, I don't think he really realized all that. 
And, and one thing that a lot of your teammates have expressed, and I'm sure you're going to feel the same way, is if free agency wasn't on the horizon and Charlie wanted to keep the team together, huh. you, know, it, it would, it, you know, you won three in a row. There's only two franchises to ever win three in a row. That's the Yankees and the Athletics. Mm-hmm. It would have been very interesting, as you guys are all still in your prime, how many more World Series you could have won. Yeah, it would have been nice to, to, you know, experience that, but that didn't materialize, unfortunately. But, uh, yeah, we were in our prime. That was a key uh, key ingredient right there. We were in our prime. We already had three under our belt. I would have to say we could have won a couple more just because if we could have kept that club intact, you know, and we could have avoided any major injuries to any in the core of that club, I think we, you know, I feel very confident that, and with the experience we had, I think we could have won at least a couple more. You know, you, you went through some tough times in 1972 in the World Series. You were getting death threats. <laughs> uh, yeah, what, what, what was that like? That had to be a, a little scary for you. It wasn't fun, I can tell you that. <laughs> you know, you try to play a game and you try to make a living for your family and you got some wacko, you know, uh, who's got different ideas about the whole thing. But, uh, yeah, it wasn't fun. You know, it, it was... I had the FBI, you know, I had to, you know, travel with those guys when I was in Cincinnati and they would pick me up in a, you know, uh, unmarked car or a bulletproof car and they would take me in a secret way in in the Riverfront Stadium. And then, you know, when the game was over with, I couldn't travel with the club. I had to go back to the hotel with those guys. And then they had a guy stacked, you know, outside my, my room. And uh, couldn't go down and enjoy. I couldn't enjoy the experience of the World Series because, you know, I, I'm from Ohio. And shoot, I was playing in my backyard and I had friends up there wanted to see me and I couldn't I couldn't get to them and they couldn't get to me. And it was kind of frustrating. Yeah, that's awful. But uh, you performed, no doubt, being the the uh, MVP of the World Series. Let's move on to 1973. What, 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 what do you remember about taking on the New York Mets? Well, we knew they had great pitching. Uh, they had, you know, Tom Seaver, and they had uh, uh, Madlock, and then uh, Guzman. They had tremendous pitching. We knew we were going to have our hands full with that staff. And uh, any club that gets in to a World Series is going to have good pitching. you got to have good pitching to get there. And uh, between them and, and Cincinnati had good pitching, Dodgers had good pitching. But you know, we got down to sense to uh, we got down to them guys. What three to two going back to Oakland? And yeah, we ended up winning the next two games with you know uh, great pitching and of course great hitting by Campanaris and Reggie Jackson. Yeah, Joe Rudy said uh, that there's no doubt that the Mets were the team that probably gave you the the toughest competition. And then we move on to 1974. And you got a star-studded Los Angeles Dodgers team, and they had that great infield that was there together. And and I think the thing that's great about this World Series is that you've got a lot of big-name guys on the A's in their prime, and as we talked about before, and then you got guys on the Dodgers team that are in their prime, and, and, and you really handled the Dodgers. Yeah, I think what's, what, what triggered that whole thing was, if, you know, going into that first game, uh, a couple of Dodgers players had an article and they hung it up in our locker saying that there was probably none of the Oakland A's could make their lineup 
for the roster, maybe one guy, maybe Catfish might be able to pitch in their rotation. <laughs> and of course, we all read that, and it, it kind of took us to another level with these guys. And and uh, we were already pretty confident, you know, going into that thing. And then, you know, when they put an article like that in our locker, and uh, we just said, you know, what, uh, it shows what these guys, what we're all about. And uh, we split there in L.A. We should have won probably the second game in L.A., but uh, we didn't, and uh, we took it back to Oakland and uh, won the next three games, and that's pretty much it. Yeah, that doesn't seem like very smart to uh, put something out like that with a team that's just won back-to-back World Series. That doesn't seem very smart. And, you know, one, one, one of the funny stories Sal Bando shared with us was as the captain, the clubhouse guy came up and said, hey, we hear you guys are kind of a wild bunch. And Sal says, Oh no, that's so overrated. And just after that, that's when the fight broke out in the clubhouse. And so yeah. it's like, oh my God. Yeah, that was that was Raleigh and Blue Moon. Oh man, that was a mess. <laughs> you know, we, we had this reputation going in there and we we're trying to kind of play it down. Next thing you know, bingo, these two guys get into it and oh God, next thing that hit the papers and so much for trying to play it down, you know. But uh it shows you, you know, what kind of character we had and the kind of people we had. <clears throat> We didn't let that affect the way we went on our business, and uh, we were like that the whole time I was with that organization. You know what was it like? You also went on. You you, you won another World Series with, with with the Cardinals, and then of course as a coach. What was it like? What's the difference between winning as a player and winning as a coach? Uh, it's you know it's uh, well I think it's more fun as a player. I mean it's fun to win one, and no matter what position you're in, but I just think for a player, it's just, you know, because you know what you have to put into to get to that, you know, that final uh, goal. And uh, you're you're doing all the work. The coaches are just, you know, the coaches. Uh, they're not playing games. They're not making the sacrifices you were making. And they're not putting in the time and the, and the effort to, uh, you know, as a group to win a planet, win your league, win the planet, get in the playoffs, and get all the way to the – you know, World Series, but you know, for guys that, that can't get there as a player and they're fortunate to get there as a coach, it's pretty gratifying, really. But I think it, to answer your question, I think you get more out of it if you can play in one of them and then fortunate to win one. Gene, we always appreciate the time. You know, last time we had you on, we were celebrating one of your World Series team. I had you down on the field, but it, it's great to get you here on the phone. Be safe, be well. We're gonna be we're gonna be celebrating not only 72, 73, 74, but we're really gonna be celebrating you in 1972 as you were the World Series MVP. Thanks for the time. Be safe, and we'll talk to you once this season starts. Yeah, let's hope it gets it started soon. But uh, you guys take care, and I, I really appreciate the call. Always good hooking up with Gino. And then our, our final guest, no one has called bigger games in A's history than Monty Moore. Because if you remember back in the day, this voice, this legendary voice out of Oklahoma, he would be on the national TV broadcast when the games were back in Oakland. And then he'd be on the national radio broadcast when the teams were on the road. This is a really big deal. So Monty Moore became a national voice and for years started doing national games because of it. But Monty Moore, the voice of the A's, came with the A's from Kansas City, 
called all these World Series games. He's an absolute treasure. He truly is the voice of the athletics. Here is the great Monty Moore. Well, I've been talking a lot about this here on A's Cast Live that we want to bring on familiar voices, voices that mean something to you. And I don't know if there's a bigger voice ever for the Oakland Athletics when you think of Monty Moore and the greatness of his career. And we're celebrating the 72, 73, and 74 World Series teams. And he called all these games and did it nationally, too. The great Monty Moore is with us here on A's Cast Live. Monty, how are you? Hey, Chris, you just made my day. (laughs) Well, I mean, when I hear your voice, you just think of A's baseball and the greatest time for this franchise when they moved to Oakland. You called all these games, and there's only been only two franchises in the history of baseball to win three World Series in a row or more. It's the A's and the Yankees, and you called all these games. Yeah, and it was a, a great break for me to uh, to be asked by NBC uh, TV to do those with Kurt Gowdy and uh, Tony Kubek. And, uh, you know, I had uh, gone to University of Oklahoma, and uh, Kurt Gowdy was at that time a sportscaster at KOMA in Oklahoma City. And he used to do the University of Oklahoma games, and I was a student on the student radio station doing the games on our little wireless station. So for me to get to work with uh, Kurt Gowdy on, on NBC TV was something special. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we don't have that now. And it, and it just seems like you it would be great to have one of the local guys who knows the team to be a part of it. And for you to be on national television back then when you only had three options, I mean, you're getting extreme exposure for your career. Yeah, it's really fun. And, uh, you know, uh, I'll tell you a quick story, Chris. Uh, On my first telecast on NBC, it was back in Oakland uh, against Cincinnati. We had been in Cincinnati, and Kurt Gowdy and I had been rehearsing our opening uh, part of the telecast. And now it comes time for the thing to go on the air, and they're counting down. And they start counting down. You guys will be on the air in 10, 9, just like you did a few minutes ago. And on about 6, Kurt Gowdy reached over. I was sitting next to him, and he touched me on the knee. He said, okay, Monty, just relax and have a good game. There are only 30 million people watching. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, that is a great story. Because, yeah, I mean, the ratings back then for sports – you know, like I said, there. You know, you only got three options. There wasn't cable. I mean, everybody's watching. And he, even when, you know, think about. I believe you did the Saturday game of the week too. Correct. Yeah, I did. Uh, after the World Series, after I actually uh, left the A's and came down here to uh, uh, Porterville and bought the radio stations, uh, NBC called me up and asked me would I be interested in doing the Saturday afternoon uh, backup game for the game of the week, and I said. Absolutely. So uh, Maury Wills joined me, and he and I did it for one year, and then Wes Parker did it with me for two other years. Wow. You've had some some partners that, I mean, the names of the people you've worked with is unbelievable. Well, yeah. (laughs) On the A's broadcast alone, I I can't tell you how many I've had, but, uh, you know, oddly enough, Chris, four of the guys who worked for with me, uh, on, Oakland, on Oakland A's broadcast are now Hall of Famers. And uh, 
uh, some of them were there not very long. Harry Carey was one. He was there for one year. And, uh, of course, John Miller was there for one year when Charlie asked us to fire him. That was one of the worst mistakes he ever made. Uh, and Bob Elson worked there, you know, one year. So I've had I've, I've had the pleasure of working with some Hall of Famers on the Oakland A's broadcast. Well, we're celebrating these teams that are truly some of the best teams ever in our game. And you think about the teams that they beat when you start talking about the Big Red Machine and the Mets and then the Dodgers with that great infield and great starting pitching. What was it about this A's group that allowed them to take down the biggest? They were always underdogs. And they took down the biggest teams in the game. What was it about them that that uh, allowed them to do that? Well, you know, Chris, those clubs were made up of a bunch of uh, uh, players who played together in the minor leagues. A lot of them uh, under good management, like Johnny McNamara managed some of those guys before they got to the big leagues. And a lot of them had signed big contracts when they were maybe right out of college. But they played together for a few years in the minors before they got up to the big leagues. And when they got there, uh, they ended up with, I think, one of the best team captains in any sport. And I've done football, basketball, and everything with team captains. I think Sal Bando represented a, a team captain and what he could do to help a ball club better than any I've ever seen in any sport. Uh, you know, there were four years, Chris, when he played in over 150 games. And in two of the years, he played 162 games. And and for a guy to play every day, and the players looked up to him, you know, quite a bit. And in particular, Raleigh Fingers took, got a lot of uh, talking to when Sal would come over from third base and talk to Raleigh, who once in a while would forget things that were in the game plan. <laughs> you know, we recently talked to Sal Bando and Raleigh Fingers, and – I asked Sal what it meant to him that to this day, if anybody refers to him, they refer to him as Captain Sal. And yeah. that, that, that's really special. It goes to your point of what he meant to the ball club. Yeah. And, you know, when Alvin Dark was hired by Charlie to take over in Oakland as manager for the second time, as a matter of fact, uh, he was also a manager in Kansas City for Charlie. But when Alvin Dark took over, he came uh, – into the first meeting down at spring training, I'm told by some of the players who were there, uh, that uh, Alvin started saying some things, and and uh, the players let Alvin know that, hey, look, we learned how to play championship ball under Dick Williams, and Sal Bando is our captain. He'll take us through. Don't worry about it, Alvin. We'll carry you through. <laughs> yeah, that's something uh, your good friend Ray Fossey tells us all the time about how he, when he showed up from Cleveland and next thing you know, Dick Green's telling him in spring training, oh, we're going to win the World Series. Don't don't, don't worry about it. And it's like <laughs> it's like crazy to think, but that was, that was how confident these guys were. Yeah, and, you know, looking back over the uh, three years that you're talking about, 72, 3, and 4, uh, just checking my old scorebooks uh, recently when I heard I was going to be talking to you, and, boy, they had a, they had a lot of – players and it wasn't just the same one all the time a lot of players made awfully big plays very important plays in those three years in the world series and uh, of course you're real well versed in in uh, most of the ones that we're talking about i'm sure but 
those guys just, the, the tougher the game, the better they were. And you had a budding star in Reggie Jackson. When did you know watching him, like, oh, God, this guy, this guy is amazing? First batting practice I ever saw him take. <laughs> <laughs> he, he lost a few batting practice balls over the screen in right field. Uh, but, you know, just looking at him, he was a solid athlete. He wasn't all that tall. Uh, he was very fast, but he was very, very strong. And uh, I, you know, you just figured he played for a great college team and coach, Bobby Winkles at Arizona State, with Rick Monday. You know, we had both those guys and Bando. Those guys all played for Arizona State. And uh, Charlie signed them up in the free agent signing days. Uh, uh, when they got bonuses and so forth, those guys all got pretty good bonuses. But uh, to see all the things that uh, that Reggie did uh, were absolutely tremendous. I, you know, and as just another one of the great players on those teams. You know, I I think about how lucky you are compared to what we have today, because when you're throwing catfish and Holtzman and Vida and Blue Moon out there. You're not having three-and-a-half-hour games like we have now where we have a starting pitcher go five or six and we have a bunch of relievers. Yeah. Next, you know, I mean, y- y- the games you were calling, those games went quick because you had that great starting pitching. Yeah, and and uh, it wasn't just one good one on, uh, on the pitching staff either. You know, you named Holtzman and, and Hunter. There's another one that we can mention that's the only guy I think had ever pitched in all seven games of the World Series. That was Darrell Knowles. Mm. Uh, and and we played in the 1973 World Series uh, without Knowles, and uh, it was it 73? I think it was that that Daryl got hurt uh, during the playoffs and didn't get to play in a World Series, the same World Series that Reggie didn't get to play in. But then the next year, Knowles pitched in all seven games of the World Series. Yeah, the, the 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 one thing that blows me away, and, and Fossey brings it up all the time, how they only used five pitchers in the 74 World Series against the Dodgers. I mean, yep. that's so unheard of. That will never happen again. Yeah, right. And uh, something happened in that World Series that uh, never happened again either. And it was Catfish Hunter was called into a ball game in the fifth inning out of the bullpen. It was the only – the. He only, in his whole career with the A's and in the big leagues, he only pitched in relief in two games. One of them was in that World Series for one in, one part of an inning. Yeah, didn't he? Uh, he closed out one of the games in 72, didn't he? Didn't he against the Reds? I don't think I don't think he closed it out, but he 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 got into a game. I, I don't recall exactly when when he got into him, but I remember against the Dodgers when he came in we were talking about this is the only time he's in his life he's ever been in relief. And I know he talked about it in some of the interviews and so forth. Uh, so it didn't happen very often that we got to, got to see him come in and, and relieve anybody. You know, one thing these guys all talk about is a common enemy, and that's Charlie Finley. Imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> Tough. As a broadcaster, what was it like to work for him? Well, you know, I got accused of, of uh, uh, listening to Charlie and having him tell me what to say all the time uh, when I was, you know, doing the games and Charlie was there. 
I can honestly tell you, Chris, the only time he ever told me what to say on the air was be sure to plug cap day, helmet day, all the promotion days. And then once in a while, during the ball game, he would call up to our booth and tell us, hey, I just made a trade, and I want you to announce it. We would announce it, and the guys out in the bullpen always had transistor radios. And when I announced it, <laughs> that trade, you know, like a trade had been made during the game, those guys hadn't heard it. They heard it on the radio. Well, Charlie, you know, he he stayed after us to promote all the special events and uh, things like that. But he never he never really told me what to say about the team or anything like that. Yeah, you know, Raleigh Fingers was telling us he talked to him like one time he negotiated a contract with him, and after that he got an agent and never spoke to him again. What was that? Uh- as as kind of like a on the outside looking in, what was it like watching the relationship? And obviously, Charlie was in Chicago most of the time. But what was it like watching the relationship between the owner? He's the owner GM with the players. Well, it was maybe unequaled in big league history. I don't know about Steinbrenner, some of those guys that were, you know, pretty well known as as tough owners. But uh, it was it was really bad between the two. I'll tell you how bad it was reflected on me at one time. After a, after a uh, World Series and during the uh, negotiation period for the players, in those days they negotiated every year, well, after the World Series, I was invited to take my wife and kids on a cruise with, I think, four or five of the ball players, and uh, we were to provide a program every day on the ship it was a cruise down to the Mexico area, and uh, we were to the entertainment, and so we would show the film of the World Series and talk about it. Well, when Charlie heard that I had gone on that, and uh, during my my vacation time, when Charlie heard that I had gone on that trip with the players, uh, close to the time they were negotiating with Charlie for money, he that's the time that he called up Chuck Cotonero, who was the accountant, on uh, in, in the A's front office and told him to take me off the uh, health insurance and off the payroll. <laughs> I found out about it when I was in the hospital. When I got back from that cruise, I was in the hospital and had to have surgery on my back. And I found out that, that I didn't have any health insurance because Charlie had made them cancel it. He was so mad at me for going on that trip thinking that I would side with the players in his negotiations. Well, the story got out in the papers and everything that Charlie had fired me. Well, he didn't fire me. He just, he just took me off health insurance and, and wasn't going to pay me. So that's firing, if you want to call it that. That's what it was. But when when it all got out in the public, Charlie called in the hospital and talked to me and said, Hey, all this stuff about you being fired, you're not fired, you're my announcer. Well, that's that's just the way he, he was taking a little heat for it. I think a little bit more than a little bit of heat. But, but that's the kind of reaction he had with the players. It was almost animosity about everything. Yeah, I'll give you a little family story for me. I'm, I'm pretty sure you know who my grandfather was, uh, Bob Elliott, back in the days, long-time oh, baseman. Yeah. And my grandfather gets hired to manage the A's in Kansas City in 1960. And as my 
grandfather is driving from San Diego to Kansas City with my grandmother, my mother, and my aunt when he arrives. Charlie had traded Roger Maris to the Yankees. They immediately got into a fight. And uh, after the year, my grandfather couldn't wait to get out of there and join the first Angels staff. So uh, I, I don't think there's I don't think anybody that came in contact with Charlie Finley didn't have one brush up at some point. Yeah, absolutely. But that that's uh, that's about the only time he cussed me out. He cussed me out after one of the World Series parades he had in uh, downtown Oakland. And the people who arranged a parade, they were it was going to end at a park there in Oakland, and all the players would get out of the cars and be introduced. Well, they had me in the last car in the parade, so when when it was all over, I'd go up to the stage and introduce the players. Well, the players got there well ahead of me, and Charlie had John Miller, my broadcast partner at that time, introduce some of the players as they came out. And then when I got there, all the players had been introduced already, but they asked me to say some things about the team. I forget what it was. But the day after the parade, Charlie had all the staff over at the Edgewater Hotel, and when I knocked on the door, he started yelling and cussing at me for not being there for the introduction of the players. I said, Charlie, I didn't have anything to do with where I was in the parade. They put me back in the parade. I mean... It was like he went crazy, and the whole staff was there and heard it, and, and every one of them was, you know, just kind of cringing. Yeah, wild times. Hey, Monty, thank you so much for coming on the program and talking about these great teams. Uh, truly one of the best eras in baseball history. And, you know, when we think of voices of the Oakland Athletics, uh, you're at the top of the list. So thank you so much for the time. Be well, and we'll talk to you once this season starts. All right, Chris. I'm glad you're in this uh, program. You're good for the team and good for the fans. Thank you so much. Be safe. See you later. Ah, it's been so much fun celebrating these teams and these guys and looking back on truly their greatness. We thank Vita Blue, Joe Rudy, Gene Tennis, and Monty Moore for joining us on A's Cast Live. Now back to A's Cast, powered by TuneIn. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.